agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Clemdary attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Hey, good afternoon, Mike. Hey, Jay, how are you doing this afternoon? Well, I'm, I am, uh, as I reported earlier, I am still uh, at, at work here at uh, uh, Freedom Defense Headquarters uh, watching the, the snow come down. but. Uh, um, uh, still, yes, happy to uh, ready to go. Happy to be able to make it. There you go. All right. Well, hey, before we do get started, I want to let everyone know that we are hoping to make a significant audio production upgrade by getting an actual made-for-podcasting audio mixer, as opposed to well, the thing I used and put together in our early days. Uh, now, of course, we're a small operation; we run on really tight margins, and so we're hoping you might consider helping us out. And the reason we'd like to do this is that it will make it easier for us to do more for you guys. And to that end, if we're able to get the cost of this mixer fully funded, it's going to end up being around 650 bucks. I promise everyone there that in return, you'll not only get better audio quality, but that we will at a minimum double the number of midweek interview episodes that we give you that we gave you last year so if that's something you're interested yeah that's 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 a lot so if you're interested in helping us out with this you can contribute through paypal or venmo on venmo we're at politics guys and you can find our paypal link and all of our support links in the show notes and at politicsguys.com slash support thanks so much all right, so today we're going to be talking about, well, of course, Russia and Ukraine, uh, President Biden's executive order on cryptocurrency, uh, Congress finally passing a budget almost halfway through the fiscal year, postal service reform, uh, anti-gay laws, and maybe some more stuff we will see, but a whole bunch to get have for you today. And before we get to that, though, we'll take a quick break and be right back. All right, so we open with the ongoing Russia invasion of Ukraine. Now, as the war enters its third week, Russian forces, which are still facing much stiffer than expected resistance, have turned to more indiscriminate and some would say even criminal tactics in their push to capture major Ukrainian cities and cut off the supply routes that Western countries have been using to provide desperately needed arms and other aid to Ukrainians. Now, right now, the best estimates seem to be that the war has resulted in somewhere between six to 10,000 deaths and around three times that many wounded and over two million Ukrainian refugees. And by almost all accounts, things will get worse before there's any realistic hope of their getting better. On Tuesday of this week, the Biden administration banned all imports of Russian oil and natural gas. The United Kingdom followed by announcing a plan to phase out all Russian oil products by the end of the year. And EU officials pledged to cut Russian gas imports by two-thirds by the end of this year. And earlier today, President Biden called on Congress to join the EU and the other G7 countries to end normal trade relations with Russia, saying Putin is the aggressor and Putin must pay a price. And late this week, also, the House approved a $13.6 billion in aid for Ukraine. That's part of that $1.5 trillion budget bill, which we'll be discussing later on in the show. That actually more than doubles the administration's initial request of $6.4 billion in aid to Ukraine. And, of course, most folks have heard that Poland uh, stepped up and offered to send its entire fleet of Russian MiG-29 fighters to, to the U.S., well, to the U.S.'s Ramstein Air Base in Germany to then transfer them to Ukraine. 
In exchange for the U.S. providing Poland with used aircraft with similar capability to the MiGs they'd be donating. Now, it's a significant officer, uh, offer, sorry, the 30 Polish jets would represent around a 43% increase in the size of Ukraine's fighter jet fleet, at least from where it stood before the Russian invasion. But the Biden administration rejected this offer, calling it not tenable, with Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby saying that fighter jets departing from a U.S. NATO base in Germany to fly into airspace that is contested with Russia over Ukraine raises serious concerns for the entire NATO alliance. Kirby also said that defense analysts in the U.S. concluded that a transfer wouldn't make operational sense because the Polish jets are not likely to significantly change the effectiveness of the Ukrainian Air Force relative to Russian capabilities. Now, 42 Republican senators voiced their disagreement with this in a letter to President Biden this week, calling on the administration to work with Poland and our NATO allies to expedite the transfer of urgently needed air power, air defense systems, and other combat and support capabilities from the United States, NATO allies, and other European partners to Ukraine. And finally, then, there's the corporate pullout from Russia, which also continues with over 300 companies having halted business in or with Russia. Estimated Russian job losses from sanctions boycotts are now in the tens of thousands. The ruble is nearly worthless. Russia's sovereign debt has been downgraded to junk status. And according to the Institute for International Finance, the Russian economy is projected to shrink by 15 percent this year. That's compared to a 3 percent growth projection estimated prior to the invasion. So and I'm sure there are a bunch of things I missed, Jay. There's an awful lot going on. So. Why don't we break this down? Why don't we start with, I think, one of the big things that people were talking about, particularly the administration's decision to not take Poland up on its offer. What do you think about that? Yeah, I I think it's uh, uh, disappointing and and disconcerting for for a number of reasons. Um, First, uh, there there were signals early on that the administration was uh, on board with the Polish um, uh, proposal. Uh, for example, uh, Jen Psaki uh, had, had talked about this uh, uh, transfer and backfilling uh, planes to Poland. Uh, likewise, I think John Kirby had had made uh, statements uh, regarding that that uh, that sounded sort of like a good idea and and uh, backfilling uh, planes to Poland. Um, and as the news seems to be, it, it seems to be President Biden himself who who pulled the plug on this, uh, and that's that's a little troubling for to me for a number of reasons. I mean, it's one thing to say we're, we're standing strong, uh, but we're, we're not going to do that. And I'm not, I'm not sure the, the difference, the reason why, right? I mean, if the idea is that the Russians were to say, um, well, now under international law, you could be a belligerent and we could, we could try to knock these, um, planes out, uh, while they're at, uh, Ramstein airfield. Um, if that's the case, well, then uh, that's where we are, right? That's that's World War Three, and if they want to start it, um, I, 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 you know, look if if they're if they're if their claim is um, uh, don't help Ukraine or else we're going to attack a NATO country, um, then what what good is is uh, is, is NATO uh, to begin with? And those other NATO allies uh, should uh, should start, you know, would would have some some concern, I'd imagine. Um, Secondly, I, I I understand the, the rationale between uh, between saying, look, we're not going to enforce a no-fly zone, which would necessarily bring Russian and American uh, uh, planes into into conflict. 
Um, but but this seems to be a, a compromise that, that could be done. Um, and again, if, if the Russians uh, believe that um, they can simply attack the NATO, NATO uh, planes or NATO pilots um, flying over uh, airspace of a sovereign nation, uh, not, you know, belligerently attacking Russia, um, uh, you know, I think that's that tells us where we are. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm disappointed uh, with that. Now, maybe there's a better solution, a better way to do it to get this done. That's what I'm hopeful uh, that that you know maybe there's there's some other uh, back door we can use to get these these planes to um, uh, to the Ukrainians, um, but it, it it troubles me because it it shows uh, something of a lack of resolve. Well, um, let, let me let me and, uh, and look. We're, we're talking. I understand we're talking about brinksmanship, but if you exactly you know look back to say like the Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean, if if President Kennedy said, "Yeah, I'm not really have a blockade." Um, Right. I mean, well, that's, well, let's that's recall the other part of that Cuban Missile Crisis, where uh, we we agreed to pull some missiles out of, uh, I believe it was Turkey, and, it's, and that didn't come out till after the fact. So, uh, you know, there's a lot we don't know here, Jay. You're you're often fond of saying when it comes to military and intelligence things that there's there's an awful lot that we yeah. don't know. And uh, I, I'm just I, I'm not saying that you're wrong here. I'm not saying that those 42 Republican senators are wrong, but there to me is an interesting uh, push to trust the military and defense officials as long as we agree with them. But then when we don't, maybe we should just assume that they're wrong. And so I think that the fact that uh, defense analysts at the Pentagon have suggested that 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 would not make really an operational difference, but it could significantly it could significantly heighten the possibility for escalation. That's a reasonable thing to weigh. Now, now, of course, people can come to different conclusions weighing that in, but I don't think it's an unreasonable decision to make. I mean, according to uh, uh, Flight Global, uh, I guess they're, they're an anal- analytics firm about uh, military sizes. You know, Russia has over 1,500 combat aircraft. Ukraine has 98. And so I think the argument in terms of operational differences, how much of a difference can it make? Now, you could make the same argument for basically any aspect of the military, of course, but there are certain lines over which, and I'm sure this is the main part of it, where, as you said, well, when does brinksmanship actually go over that line? And it's a lot easier, of course, for us saying here, sitting here to say, well, yeah, go ahead and do by all means necessary short of actual U.S. troops in that country. But Putin may not see it that way. And so what we're doing is, is we're gambling with potentially thousands or tens of thousands of lives. And that should give us pause. Yeah, no, no, no doubt. And, and like I said, that's why I sort of put in my caveat of of maybe there's some backdoor um, in the works that we don't know about. Um, but the the I, I don't um, uh, think that the rationale saying, well, Ukrainians don't really need them. Um, oh, no, works of course well. not. I mean, of course, you know, not. Well, you know, come on, what's what's a couple extra planes? It's not going to make a difference. Um, and And what it does is it um, you know, it, it's almost, uh, the, <laughs> you know, like you, we started the show a week or two ago with the, the uh, you know, pay any price, bear any burden, uh, except we're not going to get your planes. Um, to me, it, it strikes me as that of, of saying the, here's what we're not going to do. Um, every time we say that, uh, Putin knows he's got a little more leeway. Well, sure. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, that's because he's willing to, as a dictator, uh, in essence, he's he's willing and able to sacrifice a lot more than than yeah. we are. 
because it's not his sacrifices, basically. Yeah. No, I, I understand that, but yeah. it's it's also a there's uh, there's a price to to pay for uh, brinksmanship, right? There's risks there, but there's also a corresponding risk uh, yeah. of of ignoring it. Absolutely. I, yeah. A- absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think this is not given the fact that we don't. Hit, there's a lot. I I am sure there was a lot going on that the general public is not privy to. That it makes these calculations even more difficult for us to sort of armchair quarterback either way, of course. Sure. You know, so, but, but yeah. Um, let, let's also talk about that corporate pullout. That's another big thing. I mean, you know, some companies have claimed concerns with worker safety, but it seems really much more about what you often hear called reputational risk, right? That kind of term of art. And some people say, well, is this cancel culture at work? And so I'm going to ask you, Jay, is this cancel culture? And either way, whether you call it that or not, do you think it's the right move for all these companies to make? It it is cancel culture a little bit. Um, but I would say that the, the, the big distinction is uh, so often when, when conservatives like me complain about cancel culture, uh, what we're complaining about is someone losing their job because of, of an opinion they hold uh, or, or something that they have said uh, or, uh, you know, a lot of times association uh, that, that is not even theirs, right, that they're just sort of, um, you know, lumped in with uh, a, you know, someone else and words are ascribed to them and, and therefore they're canceled or they're deemed to be uh, anything they say is deemed to be uh, so inflammatory that uh, they can't even say it and you're canceled just just because you have a reputation for, for being inflammatory. Um, I think there's there's a difference of uh, canceling someone for an opinion they hold or or statements they make. Uh, versus uh, attacking a, a sovereign country for no reason and bombing maternity hospitals and uh, killing uh, you know thousands of, of innocent people and in, in you know intentionally targeting civilians and um, there's there's a, a big difference there um, between tolerating an opinion you don't like and um, uh, you know standing up to uh, actual ag- aggression with bombs and tanks and guns and 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 uh, so forth. Yeah, so I I agree, I, and I think it's important to point out that this isn't just un- essentially unprovoked aggression. And Putin can say all he wants about the denazification and what have you, but it's also uh, in violation of what we've seen in many instances of, of uh, basic international agreements on how to conduct war and you know, indiscriminate bombing of civilian targets. I mean, there are there are war crimes uh, investigations that are already beginning to start up, and it seems there's increasing evidence that Russia is, in fact, committing more and more war crimes here. Yeah, no, so I, I, I agree uh, wholeheartedly um, with these companies that, that want to uh, get uh, get out of Russia. Um, I, I think it's, uh, you know, good on them, and um, uh, they're willing to take uh, maybe a financial hit. Uh, but they're also probably figuring that they'd take a bigger financial hit if they didn't. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, and I think it's interesting, uh, in in Russia, uh, leaders and media are sort of trying to spin this as, a good thing that we're kind of they're kind of turning away from the decadent West and embracing, you know, true Russianness. We don't need we don't even want McDonald's or Levi's or Starbucks, except, you know, this was, of course, for, for you, for you and for, for the two of us, old cold warriors. This is a very familiar line, except the context, it seems to me, is very different. You know, Russia started opening up to Western companies, Western culture, and really in the early to mid-90s, a few years after the Soviet Union fell. 
That's nearly 30 years ago. And if you look, the median age in Russia is just under 40, which means that half of all Russians don't really even have memories. I mean, solid memories of their country not being a place where they could access Western brands and Western culture. And all of a sudden, that comes to a screeching halt. And I think that the thinking of the people in charge in Russia, which is basically Putin at this point, and a few oligarchs who he's risen up with him. I mean, these are guys in their 60s and 70s. And so I think that they're tremendously out of touch. And I don't think that they appreciate the extent to which, especially the younger folks in Russia, expect Western culture and Western consumer products. I wanted to get your take on that. Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly right. If you can even think back to our days, it was always a big thing of, um, you know, trading blue jeans yeah, Levi's, to, the, to huh? the east, yep. right? I mean, that was a, a thing of, you know, they would, uh, they they wanted um, uh, European or Western goods so bad. And that, that was such a, that was such a big part of, of even the, the Berlin Wall falling, right? Um, east Berlin consumers wanting what they saw just across the other side. And why, why can't we have nice things? Um, like like the West Berliners do, um, and I don't I don't mean to make that sound shallow no, no. or 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 uh, uh, commercialized or something like that. I mean it's a, um, you, you know, Soviet economy, Soviet products. Where I mean it, you know, awful. The, I the, mean the they joke, were just right? bad. You yeah. go right. No, yeah. That was the, um, so I I think that was a, if if you look back, um. Uh, to the eighties and seventies, even I mean that whole Western culture and you know rock and roll and and all that 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 was a weapon um, against what was sort of the dour, staid brutalism, communist you know aesthetic. Um, I mean, somebody that posted the other day was on the old the old Wendy's commercial, right? Um, and you know what I'm talking about the uh, the Russian fashion show, uh-huh. yeah. um, uh, where it's it's this uh, you know. Getting visions uh, over, in my head overweight now, yeah. older woman in a babushka <laughs> and sort of a nightwear and she walks out with a flashlight and um you know daywear and she comes out with I mean, it's it's but the, the the idea is that yes everything was all the same everything was of low quality you didn't have any choice in in uh what you bought um uh, and uh yeah i think uh russian consumers are, are going to miss that and they're going to push back uh, strenuously and, and, and not, not only that, that the, jay the say, has it in okay. there to uh to fix that yeah, I say not only that, but Russia imports by far uh, the vast majority of their consumer goods. I think a number I saw was over 75 percent. And in certain categories, it's even higher. And so it's not that they even have equivalents at this point because they've gotten integrated enough into the world economy that this is going to be felt far more than it would be by, you know, Russians in the in the 70s or 80s when not only were they used to it and didn't expect high quality Western decadent goods, but th- there was at least an infrastructure to provide them with other goods, but a lot of that infrastructure is just not there. And so uh, I think that's you know, important. But, you know, al- also, I, th- I think when we think about, you know, Putin's popularity and how this is all going to kind of trickle down, I mean, right now, according to the best polling estimates we have, Putin is actually still really popular. In Russia, well, way more popular than Joe Biden or, or Donald Trump or, you know, or, or, or uh, a lot of other Western leaders are. And that's genuine. I mean, pollsters have adjusted for all kinds of things. And and, and these seem to be pretty solid numbers. And, of course, eh. not, no, and you can yell all you want. But the fact of the matter is, is when you have that sort of control 
And when you have a big segment of the population who still gets most of their information from state-controlled TV, now I'm sure you break that down demographically. You look at the under 40 population, under 30 population. Those are the people who are out there in the street protests getting arrested in that. So but my point being is that Putin has more popularity than a lot of people in the West want to admit or understand. But I also think that this media blackout can only go so far because when you have thousands arrested in anti-war protests, uh, that's one thing. And also when you have thousands of people that are dying and getting hurt, well, Putin can't just wish that away, right? And so that comes back eventually. And so I think the, the overall the overall pressure of all this, assuming that the West can keep it up, will will eventually bear fruit, though. It's it's gonna be it's gonna be painful all around. Yeah, I so I'm I'm a little more skeptical of um look, if I'm in Moscow and the phone rings and they ask me what my opinion of Vladimir Putin is, um realizing that Vladimir Putin might be listening on the other end, I I, I you know, most people would respond that it's pretty high. Um my my point is that that's not how polling works uh, in those situations. It's a lot more complex than that. I, and I understand that's a that's a common misapprehension that polling is that simplistic and, and without getting into a sort of discourse on how you poll in those sort of situations. I would say that a, a lot of very smart people have worked on some pretty clever ways to get around a lot of that. And my, my overall point is that Putin is not a hated leader by his people. He's not ready to be toppled or anything like that. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. That's what that's what those guys always think and, until they're not. Um, I mean, if you look back again to the, the Cold War era, there was when when I, I would I would think that the Soviet Union had a much tighter control over information than it does now. Um, the the there was still always the sense right of of uh, Russian people that everybody everybody knew it was you know the party line was 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 BS um, because they again just for the very reasons of they could see what's going on in in West Berlin and and uh, other places. Um, I, I think that still exists and we, we maybe just don't have a good way to measure it. Now, you have more confidence in the pollsters. Well, not only and, that, but you're right, but I'm just, I, but I think the narrative actually Putin's narrative, while it seems ridiculous to us, I think doesn't seem ridiculous to an awful lot of Russians. I mean, I think an awful lot of Russians are more than willing to buy into Russia as the eternal victim of the West. That fits into a larger cultural narrative that's been baked in, not just, well, hell, that's been baked in for centuries in Russians. And so that plays into something, I think, very deep and primal in many Russians, and they're willing to pick that up. And so I, I don't think that that's, I don't think that that's un unreasonable to to think that at all and like i said what evidence we have seems to support that now where i think you and i agree is that that can't hold out indefinitely in the face of pretty significant deprivation yeah yeah and and Absolutely. and you know levi's and mcdonald's aside if your economy is going to be shrinking by 15 percent, you know that that's gonna that's gonna put a hurt on everyone so there we go um Speaking of pain, you know, a, a number of Republicans are arguing that the Biden administration's what they would, I'm sure, call anti-fossil fuel policies, and that's fair uh, to a certain extent, that they're exacerbating the current situation 
uh, leading to a greater supply shortage than there would otherwise be and resulting in uh, most notably record high gas prices for Americans, at least if you don't adjust for inflation, which you really should. Another issue, we'll get to that maybe. But I wanted to get your take on that argument as well, the extent to which current Biden administration policies have sort of made this situation uh, worse. I'm going to take the uh, sort of a middle middle road here, because on on the one hand, I look some of the rhetoric of the um, look, this is all uh, Joe Biden. uh, uh, You know, I just paid I just filled my tank with sixty seven dollars worth of gas, uh, which is, I think, the first in my lifetime. I can't I can't remember that. Um, uh, Do I think that is entirely Biden's fault? Uh, No. Uh, But at the same time, some of the first steps that, that Biden took in, in taking office and some of the things he campaigned on was to uh, prevent or reduce our capacity to to produce fossil fuels. Um, it's, you know, we embargoed, uh, you know, uh, Russian oil. Um, but before that, I mean, he, you know, killed the uh, uh, the pipeline and essentially embargoed Canadian oil. Um and and it's a weird sort of situation where we like to pretend that we are climate, uh, uh, you know, virtuists uh, and say we're not going to get our hands dirty. We're not pumping oil. We're not drilling offshore anymore. Uh, we're not fracking. Um, uh, uh, and, and yet we'll just we'll just buy this from the Russians or even if we're not. And again, I understand oil is a commodity. It's it's fungible. So it's not like you're necessarily, you know, hey, I, you know, give me a give me a, a 30 barrels of, of Russian oil, please. Um, but that all fits into the global supply. And if we make up that global supply, uh, uh, our, on our own, then, then we're less dependent, uh, when these kind of things happen. And, and we've been in a situation for some 50 years now where a lot of countries that have a lot of oil are not always our friends or, or terribly reliable. Uh, and I, I think it, it just makes good sense strategically and even economically. Um, that, that we always have uh, a domestic capacity uh, that we can turn on and off pretty quick. Um, so would, would that uh, have prevented these price shocks? Probably not. Um, would, it, would it protect us against this kind of thing in the longer term? I think so, right? Anytime you have a war that's, that's you know, knocking out a, a big chunk of, of a fuel supply, immediately there's going to be a, a, a hit. Uh, the question is, you know, how long does it take us to make up that capacity? Um, and I think we'd be better positioned if we had a policy that, that focused on more domestic production. Yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna agree with you, and, and not not even really disagree in any way, but maybe expand and take this into a a, a slightly different direction. So I don't think you're wrong about any of that. Uh, I think it's fair Good. to. Uh, <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> we agree. <laughs> Jay's not wrong, but I think you know the overwhelming reason for decreased production in the U.S., even according to energy companies, was the pandemic, right? And now you just made, I think, a reasonable argument. Uh, concerning fossil fuels and longer-term energy policy. I mean, I, I may differ uh, about certain things, but you know, it's it's not a it's not an unreasonable argument, right? Um, now, on the whole, a couple of things I wanted to get into more specifically: the cost of gasoline. I kind of hinted at that, right? If we look at the cost of gasoline in inflation-adjusted dollars, well, it's actually not at an all-time high, and and actually, the most reasonable way to look at the cost of of gasoline is in what's called inflation-adjusted price per mile driven, 
it, that takes into effect, of course, inflation and the fact that modern vehicles are more fuel efficient, which means it costs less to go, you know, a certain number. You need a certain fewer gallons to go. Yeah, but the price no, of that, gas doesn't change. But, but, but it does, because if it takes you half as much gas to go the same distance then you're, and you go the same distance, then you're spending half as much on gas price the same. So it absolutely no, is gas, a factor. Gas costs a gallon of gas costs what it costs, regardless of how long, how far it takes you. But if you have a car that gets 40 miles to a gallon as opposed to 20, you need half as much gas. Right. But that doesn't change the price of gas. No, but it changes the cost of gas to consumers. All right. All right. I see what you're saying. You want to put it that way. Yes. Yes. And if you look at it that way, actually, uh, you know, by that measure, current prices aren't anywhere near close to record highs. Now, again, I'm not saying that where they are is a good thing. I'm just suggesting that we need some kind of historical perspective on yeah. this. And I also think you although, can... Although, although I mean, I, I, I would want to note, too, though, I mean, the Biden administration, I don't think, can get away with uh, saying, oh, hey, it's all it's all Russia. Um, you know, the, the all the, the I did that stickers at the gas pumps and all that, that was going on a long time before three weeks ago. The, the... If you want to say that this most recent spike uh, is, yeah, yeah. is because of Russian and instability, and not even necessarily a reduction in that production, but it's more to me. It's sort of a. a I think they they look at futures, right? I mean, what what's going to be produced and what's going to be uh, available on the market uh, when factoring in their prices. So, um, yeah, you know, yeah, I don't think the Biden administration would say, "Look, look at the, that that Putin." And then the other thing I think that is, I think there are plenty of Americans, uh, myself among them. Um, who would be happy and proud to say, you know what, I'm willing to pay uh, extra at the pump uh, to support the Ukrainians. Um, but, but they're, they're, you know, again, people weren't happy with what they were paying at the pump three sure. weeks ago yeah, before, yeah. before this happened. Yeah, absolutely. And while most of that is pandemic related, certainly, I mean, decisions made by administrations do have do have effects on futures. And I think most of the effects, and I think most energy analysts would say that most of the effects of a a president whose administration has been in office for barely over a year, they're yet to be felt. That's a different discussion than what we're seeing now. But but on on day one, when the signal is I'm closing off, um, uh, you know, all these, all this area for for drilling, I'm closing off offshore drilling, I'm going to ban all the fracking I can, I'm going to cancel the um, uh, the pipeline, um, surely I think um, uh, oil producers realize, hey, this is we're not going to have this sort of domestic capacity, uh, or, or at least the ability to come online anytime soon, and it discourages them from making any kind of investments uh, that would would uh, grow capacity. Right. Yeah. And I'm not saying that's not a factor. I'm just saying that that tends to be more of a factor as you get further down the line. So we're not really disagreeing on that. I don't think so much uh, as we maybe it's a degree, a disagreement in terms of uh, of kind of uh, right of degree. I think, yeah, I think that's probably right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you mentioned but, I think, but all things, all things considered. I mean, I, I guess one of the there's a strange um, uh, thing in the West, and, and I, I suppose it's not, maybe it's more American, but it's, well, no, it's, I guess it's Western, uh, but the sense of, of, you know, we don't want to get our hands dirty, um, but we're perfect, perfectly willing to let other people get their hands dirty. Um, and, and if you also consider, figure that the oil that we would produce, uh, I'm guessing would probably be done with more environmental uh, protections in place than, than whatever the Russians do, uh, or the Saudis, or the Venezuelans. 
um, or or any of those other folks who are are typically not as as friendly as as we we'd like them to be. Uh, and when when you do this, and you we've talked about this a couple of weeks ago, when uh, Europe sort of uh, abandoned the nuclear. Um, well, uh, Germany option. really, but particularly, and but Germany, of course, is yeah. the largest economy in Europe. France is right. doing its all, all for new you know, song so. I talked about a couple yeah. weeks ago. Yeah. Um, uh, abandoned uh, uh, nuclear power, um, uh, and and you know didn't really make up for it with any kind of fossil fuel uh, power. It just says we're well, we're just going to um, uh, rely on renewables uh, and that that and and rely on these other people who aren't afraid to get their hands dirty in making oil. Uh, that that puts you at, at their mercy. No, and, and and I think you know you you alluded to this in a couple of times. This this whole notion of energy independence is really, I think, misunderstood because, as you pointed out, uh, energy fossil fuel prices are are set in global markets, and so yeah. U.S. producers uh, import and export based on global market prices, not on any kind of notion of energy independence. And so, yes and no, but consider. We we get these flashpoints, right? Um, Seventy three Arab oil embargo, um, Suez crisis, um, the, the the war in Russia. Now you get these flashpoints when all of a sudden you can have uh, that international source or foreign source shut off entirely. Uh, then I, I think that that's that is a different question. Um, I mean, energy independence and gas prices are not the same question; they're related. Sure. Um, but I think there's there's a strategic purpose in having um, you know energy independence. Now we have that the silly strategic petroleum reserves, uh, which is you know supposed to help us if you know the the global supply of oil gets shut off because of some geopolitical crisis. Um, and of course it would you know get us through a couple days, and it's usually used just to knock gas prices down a couple cents. Um, uh, but but I, I I think there's a security interest. That goes beyond just energy prices. Well, yeah, and, and I agree. It's coming to a, there was a, a tweet by Elon Musk uh, the, earlier this week. He said, hopefully it's now extremely obvious that Europe should restart dormant nuclear power stations and increase power output of existing ones. This is critical to national and international security. And, and now yeah. I, I was my favorite billionaire. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, by the way, I don't have a, as billionaires go. I mean, oh, my he makes me want to throw up pretty much. Anyway, that anyway. Elon Musk aside, who anyway, I have issues with. But my point being is that I think he's got a point here. And I would say it applies not just to nuclear, which is I see as sort of a short term bridge solution, but to renewables in in general, because, as as you know, uh, most fossil fuels, even though the U.S. has huge supplies uh, that are untapped yet, most of those fossil fuels are from not so great countries. Right. I mean, now we're in negotiations of some sort with Venezuela. Right. I mean, why? Yeah. And so I think, of course, as we've seen with concerns about Chernobyl and that, that any nuclear plant is going to be inherently more vulnerable to a major accident resulting from a direct military attack if someone wanted to do that. Right. I mean, there's, there's no getting around the fact that radiation is a necessary part of nuclear power generation. And so, but, but even so, I, I think, you know, nuclear needs to be part of a, a larger energy independence discussion that also involves a, a renewables, which if you take a look at cost of renewables compared to fossil fuels, been going way, way down as economies of scale and so forth ramp in. And so this is a very different conversation we have today 
than we would have had even five years ago when comparing those costs. And that has to be part of the energy independence uh, conversation as well, I would think. I think so. But also, I mean, consider uh, what if in some future conflict, uh, the Chinese say, we are no longer going to provide, you know, let, let's say uh, 10, 15 years down the road, uh, all this this wonderful uh, Build Back Better stuff gets passed and we, we go to completely green energy and uh, it's sunshine and, and birds and, and flowers blooming. Uh, but then we get into a little tiff with China and they say, you know what, we're not going to provide you the um, rare earth uh, elements that you need to make these solar panels. We're not going to make these solar panels. We're not going to have our slaves in uh, 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 Jiangxing uh, province uh, make these uh, uh, panels for you. Um, that that goes to the same thing. If at that point we are we are up a creek um, uh, because we depend too much uh, on on a foreign country for a vital commodity. Agreed. But, you know, there's one thing we haven't talked about in this discussion, and maybe to you it's not as much of an issue, but to me and to a lot of folks on the left, it is uh, it is the defining issue of our generation and the most important issue that there is, and that's the issue of climate change. And if you just sort of assume away or assume that we'll figure something out about climate change, uh, then then yeah, we can just talk about security aspects, and I would probably agree with you a whole lot more. But to me, and again, to an awful lot of people on the left and you know, an awful lot of people who you know, study this kind of thing would say that, no, this is actually uh, an existential threat to you know, large segments of the human population. And so, therefore, we have to weigh that in as well, because there are very important costs uh, associated with that. And now I know that you are, I will call you a technological optimist, and you just assume we'll kind of find a way because we always have. Uh, but there are people, uh, a lot of people like me, who aren't nearly as sanguine as, as you are uh, and aren't willing to be quite as cavalier about the future of you know, life for billions of people. Well, and I always, I think my position, best position can best be described as balancing um, uh, immediate uh, risks versus future potential risks. Um, I would guarantee you that there's nobody in Kiev right now who's really worried about global warming. Uh, probably not. No, I would say. You know, right. I mean, yep. that's, no, it, yeah. but, but look, if we have a policy that empowers uh, uh, dictators, uh, uh, you know, to to undertake this type of uh, this type of aggression. Um, that's the more immediate problem that we need to look at. I'm not saying we don't uh, look at uh, climate change, don't move towards um, finding solutions, uh, but those solutions should not uh, be a matter of surrendering our our immediate security. Um, against uh, a potential uh, uh, problems down the road. Yeah, and I agree with you on that. And in fact, I would say that, if anything, events of the last few weeks have made a stronger argument for putting more weight onto the immediate security, because what we've been talking about prior to this was largely economic security and growth and that sort of thing. And that's usually when you and I have this conversation, which we've had you know, a number of times over the years, that's what we focus on. But now we see that there is a very real, not just the threat, but the reality of a petrol state going to war and starting a war. And so that makes even more of a case for maybe 
weighing some of those near term interests over the longer term. So I, I if, if if anyone got the sense that I was saying, you know, Jay doesn't care about the lives of billions of people, it may have come out that way in the moment. But I, I certainly, <laughs> like you said, it, it's oh, a, you say that all the time. Well, yeah, it's a good <laughs> idea. Yeah. But no, but seriously, it is a balance, right? And, and this has to weigh into that balance. And you know, I mean, there are people. You know, I've read things even now about you know the horrible climate impacts of this war in Ukraine. Yeah, absolutely. But of course, right. we John, have John Kerry said that sort of stuff. But and I mean, too much, too much eye rolling. It, but it's true. But of course, there are, like you said, more immediate problems. Certainly. So, uh, last question before we uh, get on to uh, another story. How do you see things developing here in the near term? I mean, do you see any sort of a? Uh, end game or a way out for for Putin that doesn't involve I don't know even greater devastation or is this I don't know there's there's a very weird irony um and there was a, a Wall Street Journal piece and I'm trying to think uh, maybe Daniel Daniel Henniger wrote it I'm trying to think, but but um I if you would if you had asked me what I thought where I thought we'd be at this point a couple weeks ago when the invasion started I would have said and I think I may have even said uh, the Russians are going to roll over them. Uh, they're going to move in. They'll install a, a puppet government, and uh, you know you'll have sort of some resistance fighting along, you know, probably for years. But that would be the end of it. And also uh, added I, to that, that the West would do something, but not nearly what it's done. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Me too. Yep. Yeah. Um, uh, I really, I really anticipated that this would be much more like the Crimean invasion. Um, where we would we would protest uh, vociferously and uh, shake our heads and um, you know and this and the difference being we you know offered lethal aid this time as opposed to just the humanitarian aid we offered then, um, but that in the end of the day uh, you know the, the well supplied Russian military would would uh, you know just roll over Ukraine, um, but that's not what happened and and on on the one hand that's fantastic but that's not what happened. Um, and it's due to uh, the the bravery of the Ukrainian people and um, uh, Zelensky, uh, and it's due to uh, NATO and Western nations stepping up more than I thought they would. Now, again, I, I think there's there's more to do. Um, for example, MIGs, and I uh, could also take some swipes at our uh, oil embargo and some of these other sanctions that I've read are are going to take effect uh, sometime in June, um, which seems to be kind of a yeah, little after late. Yeah, fact, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and and I can also argue about, you know, we should have imposed sanctions, but, but that's neither here nor there. Um, uh, we, we are, uh, at, at this point and the, the issue now is that because we, it's not going to end quickly, uh, and, uh, Putin is unlikely to, you know, use, they've sort of put themselves into, into two routes. Uh, either, uh, the Russians will, will completely conquer Ukraine, um, uh, or, or Putin will fall. Um, and that's that's a little scarier situation because it it very much raises the stakes uh, as far as what what will Putin do. He he's sort of um, doesn't have an off ramp, or at least there's not one visible at this point um, to just get out of there to, to say, okay, I'm installing a puppet government and we're done, um, or to say, um, no, I suppose he could say, uh, hey, good news, guys, we got all the Nazis. Um, you know, it's all cleaned <laughs> up now. Uh, and we can pull out, but I don't think that's his style. And and uh, um, especially now, I would say because if you have if if your if your uh, livelihood literally depends on projecting strength, and all you've projected so far is weakness, 
Uh, yeah. he, he can't let this stand. He has to take Kiev. He has to militarily uh, overrun Ukraine, I think, at this point. And if that means that uh, any, every kind of war crime and atrocity has to be committed, so be it. If that means that 20,000 Russian troops have to die, so be it. Um, but this this is going to happen. And the fact of the matter is, is uh, the Russian military, even with all the Western help, is 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 large enough just by sheer force of numbers and mass that they will make that happen. And it's just I think that's just a matter of time. And there's I don't think there's any getting around that. It's a question of what happens after that point. And I think anyone who says they know is is as was is totally full of it, I think. Right. And and the always, I mean, the the optimistic view, and people sort of sort of called for this. Uh, uh, Lindsey Graham, I think, called and sort of no one's, but uh, of, of a palace coup. Yeah, and um, now again, those that's that's usually easier said than done. And and not uh, only that, but uh, you know, a lot of times we, like you and I, were thinking about Russia and the situation a few weeks ago through the lens of uh, Crimea in 2014, more or less, right? Yeah. As you pointed out, and, right. and a lot, yeah, of, they just waltzed right in, yeah. yeah. And a lot of people think about the Russian leadership through a lens that's similarly outdated. The, the sort of Putin oligarch structure that's in place now is not about like Putin as first among equals or anything like that. I mean, over the last 15 or so years, Vladimir Putin has been very clever in making sure that these people who came up came up specifically because of their connections to him. And so really it it's not a there are not these independent power sources that there were in the early 2000s that this is a very different situation and so it's going to take considerably more pressure than a lot of people I think are willing to uh realize I guess before we see anything like that happening. I mean that would be great but you know I I just don't see it happening. I mean although some of these oligarchs are going to start feeling it in the pocketbook very quickly. Yeah, but of course you can feel an awful lot when you're a billionaire. You an know, before, yeah, yeah, and yeah. and you know, it's well, I'll lose a couple hundred million dollars here, or Putin will have me and my family killed. Well, you know, there's yeah. <laughs> there's two bad options, but one is less bad than the other. You can always make that money back by, by becoming a member in good standing or keeping your good standing as part of the kleptocratic Putin state. You know, so there you go. So pretty depressing note, I think, just generally speaking. And neither of us really sees anything good happening in the next few weeks, at least. Fair to say. Um, fair to say. Although I, I'm, I'm still a believer that um, Putin is not is not insane. Um, I think uh, yeah. I think he still weighs consequences, and this is becoming more costly. Um, I'm not I'm not saying I'm not saying I'm optimistic, but. Uh, I think we we do better projecting strength and certainly projecting weakness uh, does nothing to discourage him. Not not him, especially. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, if you are a politics guy supporter, the rest of the episode is coming right up. All that stuff I mentioned in the opening. Uh, if not, just a quick reminder, full episodes ad free run around two hours. They are available to our Patreon supporters as well as Anyone who isn't in a position to financially support the podcast, if you just want to try it out or what have you, just send me an email, mikeapoliticsguys.com. I will get you set up with that. Or if you'd want to become a Patreon supporter, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. You can also support us through Venmo or at politicsguys as well as through PayPal and all that as always in the show notes and at politicsguys.com slash support. Thanks so much.